Hello and welcome. My name is Luke Manley and I'm the co-host of the Morning Bell podcast. On today's podcast, Joel and I chat with Catherine Bateson. Catherine Bateson is a poet and a writer for children and young adult audiences. She's had three collections of poetry published, as well as over a dozen books for younger readers and young adults. She's won the Children's Book Council of Australia Award for Younger Readers Book of the Year two times, and has been awarded Honours Awards in both that category and the Young Adult category. In 2013, she was the recipient of an Australia Council Residential Fellowship. She spent three months in Paris, where she began the novel Lisette's Paris Notebook, which will be published in January 2017 with Alan and Unwin. She and Leonie Tyler run Tyler Bates and Publishing, which offers editing, structural editing, and mentoring services. We chat about a few films, including Dread, Skyfall, and the recent Academy Award winner, Room. As for our topic, we discuss the ins and outs of publishing and its changing nature. We assure everyone that the digital apocalypse has not yet come upon us, and we consider the reasons for favouring digital-only book releases. If you have any questions, you can email Joel at the address mailbox at thepenofjoel.com. Thank you for listening, and we hope you enjoyed the episode. Hello and welcome to the Morning Bell Podcast. Today, we are at the Brunswick Street Bookstore, and my co-host joins me. Surprise, surprise! Hey, I'm still here. He's still here. <laughs> On time. Uh, I was thinking you could make it like a... Um, I forget the name now. It's like every week you're here, and then you'll say you're going to make it the next week, and then you're not here. And it becomes a trend. <laughs> See you di- next week. Yeah, See you next that, week. Yeah. <laughs> but you're here, Luke. See and you next fortnight or whatever it is. That's right. How is how is the week been for you? The week, um, that's been de- well. The fortnight's been all right. Um, started reading a new book, or rather, listening to a new book. Me and my audio books. So um, all that all that hype about Star Wars in the last three podcasts. Oh, have you started an- reading the new? No, I've picked up an old one. Fantastic, Jude oh. Watson. Good old, good old Jude Watson. All right, so here's it. Here's a uh, here's a task for you oh, that you can report back on the podcast. <laughs> Is to uh, read the new canon books, and I'm not going to pay that much for Disney to give me a book. I'll like that. gift it to you on Kindle, <laughs> and uh, and you can tell me if they match up in your in your opinion. Since you're a fan of, Ooh, I don't know. It's bordering on heresy. I'll see what I can do then. Yeah, there you go. Um, but no pushing. But, um, other than that, bit of writing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, not too bad. I mean, so I haven't put out any posts, which is a bit. Um, Slack on my part. Yeah, there was a review you said you were going to put out. What I know, and I still that? haven't put it out yet, have I? So it's it's still pending. <laughs> I'm dragging out the suspense, letting letting people get excited about it. <laughs> Sounds good. Well, I'm glad to have you on. But um, while I'm here, I actually oh. picked up some news in the Twitter feed just a moment ago. Um, Michael Pryor is starting, he's going to teach a writing course. So for any of you who are listening and you want to... I do some writing course and you're in Melbourne vicinity. I think that's where he's going to be teaching it. Um, it's a creative writing course in April. I think cool. something to look out for. Yeah, and where can uh, people find information on that? On uh, site, you then? can find it on Michael Pryor's website. Twitter feed. Okay. Um, I'm not quite sure if it's on his website. Just trying to find the link again. And I did already have that, but it well, closed well, for some reason. Um, so writersvictoria.org.au. They actually right. have okay. a page for it. And that's so, a, yeah. is that a, like a couple week course or? Not sure how long it is. I haven't had a look yet, but mm-hmm. yeah, it is a, a fantasy writing course, actually. It's not just creative writing, it's fantasy writing. Mm-hmm. So they'll be doing that for a little while for them, for Writers Victoria. So Fantastic. Yeah. Well, Michael mm-hmm. is a friend of the podcast and he's a fantastic writer, so you should definitely check him out. Mm. Um, and he will be coming back on the podcast uh, in a few weeks time and he can probably tell us a bit more about how it's going because he will be doing it by then. But yeah, definitely check that out. Mm. Good uh, good pickup. And there's apparently a riot going on outside. <laughs> is some fancy day today? I don't remember <laughs> what day it is anyways. <laughs> That's all right. The rioters will continue. They won't invade a bookstore. <laughs> um, but uh, today we have Catherine Bateson on the podcast. Thank you very much for coming on, Catherine. Oh, thank you, Joel. Um, how has your week been? What have you been up to? My week has been fantastic. I've... Recently joined a very small writing group, and we set a weekly tar- work target right. to finish. And if you don't um, complete the target, you have to pay five dollars. 
So there's financial incentive. <laughs> oh, my the, goodness. The kitty then um, is used to take us all out to lunch. So right, it's not okay. exactly, you know, you don't lose the yeah. $5. It's not like you're bankrupting. No. no. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> but this this week, alas, I did have to pay up my $5. Oh, <laughs> no. Very naughty. Because I didn't make my quite um, ambitious word count. Um, as I was, I've also just started teaching a mm. poetry reading and workshop group mm, right. at Blackburn. So it's that's, a, that's of, yeah. a lot on the plate. Yeah. yeah. Well, what did you say your quota was again? Mike, I didn't. I didn't say. <laughs> I, very I was listening. I thought there was. I noticed that. I was like, well, I'm not going to um, ask. It was six thousand words for the week. Mm. That wow, doesn't wow. sound mm. like a huge number. Are of we words? Talking that's about, huge. That is, yeah. yeah. <laughs> like, well, it's not like nano. Rhymo. Oh, no, that's no. true, but that is a marathon for one long piece, I guess. I think yours is still one week, 6,000 for one piece? or No, no, I've been, well, I've turned my attention to short stories recently. Mm-hmm. So yep. I think that was the other thing. When it was, when I was working on um, the final draft, or the first draft, or the second draft of my latest novel, it actually wasn't a lot of words. I agree, mm-hmm. yeah. It's 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 but, much harder, I think, when you try and meet a quarter with a short story than it is with a much. novel. Yeah. Yes, much. Definitely. I can relate for sure. But uh, yeah, that sounds sounds pretty ambitious. Six thousand words a week for a short story, with other commitments. Yes. I, well, I'm keeping that, but I'm but I'm also revising a novel starting from next week. Right. So, the revision will take up some of that wordage. Mm-hmm. That, yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. That's, yeah. that's all right then. Adds to its word yeah. count. But yeah, that, um, that sounds like hard mode uh, <laughs> writing group. <laughs> but that it's sounds... quite tough, yes. Yeah. I, I, mm, it's it's good for me. Challenge, yeah. yeah. Otherwise, I sort of stare out the window a lot. And I mean, that can help watch too. Watch the birds. <laughs> that, um, can, yeah. uh, that can give you, that can give you great inspiration. <laughs> <laughs> oh, maybe not the fridge. I know. No. Yeah. Um, fantastic. Well... Let's move straight on to what we've been viewing this week. And uh, Luke, why don't you start us off? Oh, gee, of course he wants me to start off. There again. we go. This is just how All it right. Is. Well, I've got a couple of things I've started watching. Um, one of them, I'm not, I'm, I'm not really ready to analyze it yet. Mm-hmm. But um, uh, that's Lost. I haven't watched it before. Wait, the New, TV show? Yeah, TV series. Oh, yeah. there you go. It's curious, but again, I said I'm not ready to analyze it just yet. Still, mm-hmm. um, still going through that. But good start. It's also a good start. Yep. But hey. uh, the other thing that I watched was yep. after a bit of uh, persuasion from Joel Dread. Oh, Dread. So talk to me about Dread. <laughs> Carl Urban. I mean, yes. okay, that's not really what the. Um, <laughs> the pull apart is, but no, it's dread. It's Watch one of those. It's one of those arty sort of films that are put together in. Why is it? Oh, there we go. Dystopian, dystopian yes. setting. Mm-hmm. So everything's pulled apart, which is very curious for a film. I don't see it a lot. I've seen it in a few films like um, Three Hundred, but that wasn't really for the the um, structural sense. But in this, everything like slows down. It's partially because of. A, a drug they're using yeah. as a plot mechanic as well, because it's slowing everything down, analyzing everything about the world and what's going on in it. Um, so I don't know. I found it quite fascinating. I hadn't watched it before. I hadn't watched. I hadn't even read the backstory or anything like that. Yeah. Because um, I haven't really read that many comic books, but but um, it's one of those things that that intrigues me. Is the the dystopian mm. story always really. Mm. Yeah. Because that's I mean that idea. again, that's kind of like the, the ultimate science fiction is what do people do when, you know, things keep developing the way that they look like they're developing. It doesn't mm. mean that we are going to hit a dystopian future. Mm. Just that what's going to happen if that government, because you know, globalization, everything can become very, very controlled. Yeah. And so, you know, I've gone through films like equilibrium. Um, yeah. Uh, Dread now. I mean, everybody's watched iRobot. Yep. And um, actually, iRobot wasn't really um, as dystopian, I guess. I was it? Robocop, sorry. Yes, of course. Mm-hmm. The famous. But all these different yeah. dystopians. So it's, it's always fascinated me. But they're very. As well as being deep stories, I also find them simple. Yep, usually, yes. Like, not in a bad way, but they're very. Like, they've got a very short point, and they very make it very strongly. And then that's it. It it 
it's always a thing which is interesting, which is when you have a very complex subject matter, mm. the easiest thing to do is to make the narrative or the pull-through as simple as possible. Mm. So you experience the world through those characters and you don't feel overwhelmed. Like, you're not given this huge, like, and I will, you know, go into this huge geopolitical <laughs> landscape. And... Confuse everybody, like a gene yeah. sort of thing. And know? especially <laughs> when we focus on, like, uh, generally, like, popular media. Like, that's generally the route that they they go through. I should stop saying generally. It's not generally. It's <laughs> for the most part anyway. Um, yeah. Specifically, Dread, which is interesting, is what you brought up. And I'm, I'm not sure if I brought this up on a podcast. I, I don't know. But I guess I will talk about Dread anyway. <laughs> and that is the idea... Uh, the film did not very well in um, in cinemas. Uh, the American audience generally didn't appreciate that type of film. Um, mm. it, it's, it was, I think, a South African and British production company? I could be wrong. Um, but I, I know South recall. African was the one mm. half. Um, it was interesting because that film pulls no punches. Like, that is, you know... Everything's just out there. And generally, uh, you know, we've seen trends towards more harder R-rated movies recently, especially with, like, Deadpool coming out. Um, and I think it's changing a little bit. But Dread is still very hard math to, to break into and to mm. feel comfortable watching, I think, especially for some audiences. Um, it definitely fit more of a European-style film where you can watch it and be like, oh, okay, this makes total sense it came out of there. But it wasn't. So Dread's interesting to me because... Like you said, very simple storyline. We're talking about a hero who's basically a fascist um, and making him interesting. He's basically, you know, he's a cardboard character in, in many ways, hmm. but it's the little gives that you, you take out of this character. It's the little emotional slips and things, the pauses, and it's very hard. I'll, I'll see you one thing. It's hard for an actor, any actor, to play a film where you just see the bottom half of his mouth. <laughs> like the rest of his face is just covered. <laughs> So you end up having to act a lot through your body language rather than, like, facial features. Mm. And that's hard. And I think um, I think you did a really good job. So, yeah, no, I I really hope they make another Dread. It's one of those films that I think sequels work because they want to tell stories within that universe. Mm. But trying to make sequels from you know, basically an independent um, filmmaking standpoint, you need to get every you know, the producers on board, and that's a lot more difficult. Yeah, so, it, did, it did feel a lot like the Sin City series. Yeah. A lot like very the sort of arty focused on, again, the focus on that one simple sort of aspect. Yeah. But, uh, but no, I'm really happy yeah. you watched it. Anything else? <laughs> no, not at the moment. Um, so I, I thought of talking about a film that I watched a while back, and that was Spectre, the um, the uh, latest James Bond film. It's, it's interesting to me to talk oh. about Spectre because it has such... Man, James Bond is such an odd thing to talk about because we have these <laughs> set of you know um what we consider the older james bonds which are you know um oh, i can't believe it slipped my mind now sean connery, sean connery roger yeah. moore um <laughs> all of those actors playing a very uh simple storylines with you know incredibly cliched and over-the-top stunts big explosions you know <laughs> yeah that's what the films were like um, and, and generally people took it like that. There were silly experiences that people enjoyed. Popcorn film. And then we've got the the, the new trend of uh, James Bond movies uh, with uh, Daniel Craig. And the first one, I thought, did it really well. It hit all the marks without resorting to this silliness. And I think maturing that film a lot more. And as someone who had watched those previous films, I still enjoyed Casino Royale. I think mm. it's probably the best in there. In the series. And then came Quantum of Solace, where they just took too much inspiration from Jason Bourne, and they're like, let's just make this guy an action hero <laughs> that fights with people consistently. And it was bad. And then Skyfall came out. And then I thought, wow, this is a little bit better. This is a return to form. You've got this archetypal villain who's, you know, James Bond's always got this thing of creating villains that are super evil and, you know, <laughs> but interesting in their own way. Um, and not nuancing that very much. But Skyfall did a pretty good job, and I thought it was a good film. And then Spectre came out. I think it, it works in, like, alternate films. Just skip the films in between, and then you'll be fine. <laughs> Man, it just... the Spectre was just not a very well-thought-out film. There were plot holes everywhere. The ending was mm. so silly. It was so silly. Um, you build up this, this character... Um, 
I forget her name now, but... Uh, it wasn't James Bond anyways. <laughs> yeah. um, and, you know, we all know the idea of the Bond girls and the role they fill in those films. They're not characters. They're just dolls. And they're not really done very well. And I don't think those films focus on that um, to be characters, which is a bit unfortunate. Um, but this one, I thought, well, this is an interesting character and she might develop. And I'm like, ah, oh, nope. She's just another Bond girl. Surprise. Um, and... Th- the happily ever after ending with the all right spoilers because we always spoil films on this podcast so you should get used to this it's analysis now. he shoots down a helicopter with a handgun <laughs> he he flies a plane through trees breaks the wings and uses it like a car to ram another car <laughs> oh it was horrible and and the plot holes at the end you You've got three minutes to find this girl in this gigantic building. Guess what? He finds her. And then you need to get out of the building. But yeah, it's just, it's way too contrived and really unfortunate that they went down that route. It just, it went silly without any of the charm that mm. the old Bond mm. films had. Lacking the gentleman aspect. Yeah. It was actually boring. <laughs> it mm. really was. For the first it, time, I was looking yeah. at my watch going like, Yeah, mm. I was too. Yep. Yep. You know what's happening at this minute and at this minute? <laughs> so you watched uh, Spectre, Catherine. I did, after Skyfall. Mm. Um, I hadn't seen a Bond movie for many, many years. Went to see Skyfall and went, oh. oh not bad. And then went to see Spectre and went, <laughs> oh. oh. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yep. Very mm. unfortunate. Mm. And uh, yeah, I wish I could take those hours of my life back. because. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, then you probably go see it again because you hadn't seen it. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Um Yes, very, very unfortunate, and I'm just surprised, very, very surprised that they went that route. And I get the whole idea with people, oh, we're talking about globalization and surveillance and all this mm. stuff. Come on, it was a bit tacky. In a James Bond movie. <laughs> <laughs> we, and I get, you know, they were saying, oh, we might meet, wait a few years so then we can tackle another big, you know, problem. I'm like, no, no, not Please really. Please don't. Please don't. <laughs> I don't know, the next one will be like, he's fighting climate change. He's fighting the icebergs. Single-handedly. <laughs> he, he crashes a plane into an iceberg With to a, stop it. a very green car. I don't think so. I want to actually uh, see this appealing, film but... Yeah, this sounds funny. This, I want to see this. Inspector um, Gadget. Hey, we just made a better James Bond film than Spectre. Uh, so... Very disappointed with that film, but uh, yeah, that's that's my that's my film of the uh, the two weeks. Catherine, what have you got for us? Um, well, there was huge excitement in my house because Vikings is back on, oh. <laughs> and um, it's it's a TV show that we all watch. My husband mm-hmm. and my daughter and myself. So that was that was fairly exciting. Yeah. Um, the film I recently saw, which left me. Almost, um, well, it left me gobsmacked. Was Room, which right, is okay. um, taken from a novel by I think she's an Irish writer, Emma Donoghue. She also wrote the script, and I saw it at the Nova um, quite a few weeks ago. Now, the actor has just the actress actor female actor has just won the Oscar. Right. Okay. For her lead role, it's. Um, and you are, we are allowed spoilers. It's a, oh, it's a difficult yes. movie because it's actually room. It, it tells the story of a woman who's been kidnapped and given birth to a child, mm. still kidnapped. And she creates this whole universe for this child out of this room. And so you, it's true. The book is written from the point of view of the child, mm. so, which is a very interesting take. And the film keeps this viewpoint. Mm-hmm. Um, but of course, you know it has the mother's voice in it, as well as the child's. Um, mm. Quite very, very challenging, demanding, grueling mm. film, mm. but exceptional. Yeah, there are films like that that, um, though they might not be enjoyable experiences, they are experiences. Oh, ab- yes, yeah. absolutely, and and, I- qu- and quite a feat, I think, to to not. You know the ending. The ending is very interesting because mm. she takes, she actually escapes from room, mm-hmm. and mm. the film carries on beyond the escape. So it's a much, right. it's a much more interesting yeah, take yeah. than you would necessarily expect. And interesting that Donahue wrote the script, so had mm. control over that yeah. as well. She actually is a scriptwriter or a playwright, 
well, playwright is a scriptwriter, but I mean, she's a. <laughs> of a I kind. think she's a playwright rather mm. than a screenwriter. I'm not sure. Mm. Well, there you go. Well, that's mm. something I'd check out. But, mm. um, so it's just called Room. Just called Room. Yeah. Fantastic. Yeah. No, I. Um, it raises a lot of issues about you know motherhood and the role, how you can create um, an, an entire environment for a child. You know, do your best as a mother perhaps, and still still have struggles, like enormous struggles. Um, yeah. And apparently Donahue wrote it partly to talk about the isolation of motherhood, not just the isolation of a woman who's or a person who's been kidnapped. And, mm. So using and that hard. device to... Yeah, using that sort right. of measure, as a metaphoric structure. Mm. Mm. Interesting. Well, there yeah. you go. Sounds really good. Um, you mentioned Vikings. I did. Uh, <laughs> That's a show that is interesting to me because, uh, and I've and I've said this probably on the podcast numerous times, but I'll say it again. The uh, when it when something popular comes out um, like Game of Thrones, and uh, I understand I understand why marketing agencies or publishers will be like, "This is the new Game of Thrones," and I and that's fine. Mm. But when a reviewer when a review is like, oh, guess what, guys? This is Game of Thrones in, you know, historical, you know, England and, you know, the Netherlands. It's like <laughs> you're you're undermining a content because you're trying to compare it. You're trying to make mm. an easy reference to something that people can immediately click and be like, all right, so it's got political intrigue, violence, and, you know, a bit of mud and sex and that, yeah, lovely. Um, and I, that's a really unfortunate trend because when The Last Kingdom came out... Um, uh, which was another show based in a similar time period, or at least a little later. Um, they're like, oh, this is just Vikings in, in England. And I'm like, oh, please, just <laughs> really stop doing this. This is getting on my nerves. I think Vikings is a very good show in its own right. And just because a show has political intrigue, intense character development, does not mean it is Game of Thrones light. Um, mm. I definitely think the first season was like, it was it was interesting because I feel like they were finding their feet they were trying to find the voice of what the show was going to mm-hmm. be. Second season worked really well, and then I think they've just hit a winner from then on in. At times, it can get a little bit melodramatic, for me anyway. When it focuses on a specific thing a bit much, it's like you're forcing the viewer to, to be like, this is important. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's some really good character development in that show. And how, you know, and, and sometimes it's not even the main character that's the interesting person. It's all the supporting cast mm-hmm. and the world around him, so... Yes, and I think they also um, use that kind of mythic quality mm. quite mm. cleverly yep. as well. Um, yeah, I find it quite interesting. Yeah, because yeah. you've got, well, one particular character, for instance, is you know, deeply connected to that um, Norse you know, paganism. Mm. And when he does certain things and assumes that that, therefore, is evidence of, of, of you know, that belief. And because mm. you as a viewer aren't left there to judge, you're like, well, could it be? And in, in this world... The way that that is used is fantastic. You're, you're completely right. It mm. uses it in a very, very smart way. But no, it's a, it's a very good mm. show. And I'm glad mm. it's still going. Yes, I am too. Um, yeah. Too many shows that are good but don't get a lot of attention just get canned. Hasn't done a Firefly yet. Yeah. <laughs> well, it can't. It's three seasons, so. <laughs> Which is unfortunate. Um, but yeah, fantastic. So anything else you'd like to mention or is that it? No, that's about Sounds great. Mm. Um, let's move on to the topic. And the topic at hand, uh, I wanted to bring on a guest that could talk about publishing, um, specifically a, a change in publishing. And, it, and it's interesting because of the change of the services your company provides, uh, Thailand Bateson, um, was interesting to me. And especially provokes a debate that I've been wanting to have for a while, and that is the idea of the changing trends in publishing and where the industry is going. Uh, so if anyone wants a funny ha-ha moments, this is the time to tune out now because we're going to talk about industry <laughs> stuff. <laughs> just, just for the audience um, um, information, what, what's the Thailand Bateson doing then? I mean, I, I've already looked up. It's a publishing and editing process. Is that still... It was started, the idea that Leonie Tile was the um, children's publisher with University of Queensland Press for many years and I started my writing career as a children's writer under her editorial auspices. Um, she, was, she then moved on to 
Random House where she created an imprint for literary children's books mm-hmm. called The Woolshed Press. Hmm. Um, that was a victim of the global economic crisis and Leonie mm. was retrenched. At around about the same time, I teach professional writing and editing through TAFE and it was around the same time where the government defunded a lot of TAFE courses. Mm. So we were both sort of um, talking to each other and bemoaning the industry, both the writing publishing industry and the writing teaching industry. Yeah. And we decided we would start something that would kind of float us a little bit economically but still retain, a f- um, you know, a- an interest in and a presence in the industry that we loved. Yeah. So we came up with the idea of starting an editing and publishing services partnership company. Um, we started it we we really haven't we really didn't start it at the time we were talking about it we started it only a couple of years ago mm-hmm. in terms of putting a website together um we still don't do a lot of advertising we rely largely on word of mouth yeah um but interestingly enough when we first started it we were very enthusiastic about the publishing side it was at a time when um there was a sense where the ebook revolution had mm-hmm. come and there was a sense that there was a niche in that market to produce quality ebooks that never needed to be hard copy yep. that has changed and where in fact we have not been a publishing company at all mm. we've actually centered on editing services mm-hmm. um it's interesting that you mentioned the change and it's also interesting that you mentioned the ebook revolution because um Self-publishing has changed the industry um, dramatically uh, and has spawned a lot of varying degrees of types of self-publishing. Um, one of our previous guests on the podcast, Ewan Mitchell, um, was basically talking us through that idea of self-publishing in the various forms. Uh, but specifically, I'm interested in hearing what you think about uh the way ebooks have changed the industry and the quality of the books being produced on it. For instance, um, people were predicting back in 2008, and we mentioned this before we started the podcast, where you know people were fearing that uh, the the publishing industry would die because it would become just like the music industry or the film industry, where the digital side of things just really stumps <laughs> over it. But that hasn't happened. Uh, at least it hasn't happened yet. And in fact, it seems that. Right now, the ebook um, side is sort of plateaued or even declining slightly to a point where it's at a nice, solid uh, rate, um, and publishing uh, is still uh, producing um, a good number of books, and bookstores are, are thriving as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a couple of um, books, bookstores opening up here in Melbourne, and they seem to be doing quite well. And, and the role of a bookstore has changed as well, being a public space and sort of what we're using now. Um, but yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd like to hear your thoughts on on that and the the doom saying at that time. It's hard to it's hard to unravel the mm. various kind of possibilities. I think when everyone started very excitingly excitedly talking about ebooks, there was a sense that they would be different from just um, an ebook version of the published book, mm. so that they would be interactive. They would have hyperlinks. They'd yeah. be very exciting visually. They would be more like... They would border on the idea of game technology. Yeah. Yeah. And certainly there are those... There are examples of that out there. Mm-hmm. However, if, if you're a reader, you might want to separate your reading from your game playing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think this is where the industry itself had to kind of start to think about what they were doing. So while you've got hyper you know you've got hyperlinked websites etc is that actually a book is that what people yeah. buy when they buy a book what happened to and there's a very good little um quite a large essay by I think David Ullen The Lost Art of Reading where he talks about the immersive quality of reading and yeah. how he discovered that he was not reading the way he read as a young adult or even as an adult because he was stopping to do all this hyper, yeah. you know, to find, to research as he was reading. Mm-hmm. And um, I think people, you know, that immersive experience is part of what 
is so charming about reading, that sense of lost time when you're deep you're in a book. You're inside the book, yeah. You're not, you're not <coughs> going outside. You're not trying to cross-reference it with other things. It's, you're there. Mm. <laughs> so I think, yeah, so I think that's, that has come much more to the forefront. Mm. Mm. Yeah, definitely. And um, I think it's interesting because uh, we're talking about the quality of, of the types of books that we publish on ebooks, and there's this, uh, it's 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 quite harsh, and I think a little bit um, misinformed. Uh, but there was the idea that like you can't get published traditionally. Well, I guess your work's not too good, so go e-publishing, and that was the sense of like giving the idea that that the traditional published way is like it is the best method. Everything that's self-published is therefore. You know, it didn't get published. It's obviously, you know, you went for second best. And I feel like that's a little harsh and that's not the kind of... And I don't think that is always true. I mean, Mm. I know that the old terms of vanity publishing still are around. Yep, Um, Coming Mm. from a background as a poet, definitely during the 80s, 70s and 80s in Melbourne, there were a lot of um, cooperative presses. Mm -hmm. I was first published by Pariah Press, which was a Mm -hmm. cooperative of poets, who edited the manuscripts but worked as a cooperative. Yeah. So I was no I'm no stranger to that that kind of form of yeah. self publishing. And I think um at its best that works very well, particularly when the market is squeezed, or for marginal books, for mm-hmm. for niche market books. If you write um you know, if you write a certain kind of genre of book you'll be fighting to find a mainstream publisher. And I was very interested, a couple of years ago I went to, I I try to go to the Continuum Conference Mm -hmm. uh, convention every year, the popular fiction, science fiction fantasy conference, because I find the the world very interesting. And when I grow up, I want to be a fantasy writer. (laughs) You know, and hanging around makes me feel kind of almost there. Um, (laughs) But the optimism about self-publishing and indie publishing in that, arena is extraordinary yep. and I think that's very heartwarming and I think it's it's an area that um, you know there was just an immense w- wealth of optimism I can remember hearing Callie Link the short story writer talk about the press that she and her husband run Small Beer Press they actually give away ebooks on their site with a little note if you like the ebook buy the hard copy mm. or buy the book. And I think, you know, mm. I think that's where there's an immense generosity can be um, f- fostered by having a number of different publishing arenas. Mm. It's interesting you mentioned, uh, Catherine, about uh, those niche genres because me specifically, I'm, I'm um, quite heavily invested in the sword and sorcery genre. And that's a genre that hasn't had a lot of love in publishing for, well, a very long time. It's <laughs> <A long time. laughs> <laughs> so like yeah. we, we go back to the days of, you know, Robert E. Howard and such, and that's mm. a very long time. And sure, there were other authors that uh, carried on the torch. But it's interesting because um, pub- traditional publishing, and this was mentioned in a recent article, where it's difficult for an author to survive basically if they're not if their books are not selling well even if you are going in a traditional route like your experiences Mm. with publishing like talk us through it what were they um well i started my writing life as a poet so you certainly Mm. don't expect to make money (laughs) that's right don't do poetry (laughs) in fact you you know when you excuse me when you got a poem published in a journal it was like oh wow let's eat out (laughs) this is fantastic (laughs) yeah Um, if the journal paid, which, of course, only the top 10% or whatever did pay. Mm. So you got very used to not rely, you know, to regarding that as a vocation um, rather than a career. Um, when I turned to children's writing, and I didn't turn deliberately to children's writing, I started off writing a verse novel for young adults. It was just that that story fell into that age group, that yeah. target age group. Um, but I went to, along to a Reading Matters conference in Melbourne, which is the big young adult reading um, and writing and conference, mm. mainly put on for teachers and librarians. Mm. And I remember I ran into – I wasn't actually published at that stage, but UQP were interested in my first 
verse novel and Leone had arranged to meet me at Reading Matters. And I ran into Libby Gleeson, who, of course, is a very well-known children's writer, and Leone introduced us, and Libby said, you know, oh, well, you poor thing, you're, you're welcome to the marginal <laughs> world of children's <laughs> books. And I looked at Libby and I said, look, I'm a poet. This is fantastic. <laughs> this is like heaven to me, yeah. And she said, oh, poet, you poor thing. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. So um, my, you know, my experience was actually moving into a, a much bigger field than I had been used to, although admittedly verse novels for young adults aren't actually a big field. But children's writing has been... Um, traditionally one of the fields that people can actually make a working living out of. Mm. I don't think that is as true as it used to be at all. Most writers I know, even in children's writing, have second jobs and a lot of them survive through teaching as I do in a professional writing and editing course. Mm. Or the ones who actually don't have a second job do spend a certain portion of every year doing school tours. Yep. Mm. Yeah. And that's just how it is. That's the only way you survive, unless, that's you're, right. unless you're in the 1%. Unless you're a phenomenon, a phenomenon yeah. like Twilight or... Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's right. And that's something that's hit the, the self-publishing industry as well. You've got these... You've got a lot of people who've... Um, I saw an article where it was talking about people who are inspired by the, the stories of like the one-off shots who like they, they self-publish on, on Kindle and get like 10 million buys. Mm. And so everybody's like, oh, I can do that. Oh, my, my thing will be fantastic. It'll, it'll be a hit. It's, fan- it's great. And they put it up there and either they're, they get no sales and they just never see it again or they get no sales or few sales and become completely ashamed and pull it off mm. or... I mean, it it varies really, but there's so many people with the get rich because it's fantastic idea. Like, yeah, maybe I'll get that that just that coverage that'll pull in the one dollar or the three dollars or whatever mm. per purchase. It's interesting too because I think you I think you can do that if you're very canny mm. about the market. But I think one of the big things about um, self publishing on on the um, ebook platform is that. There's been a lot of badly edited, badly copy edited. We're not talking about Mm. structural editing, just badly Mm. copy edited books out there. However, I did did a small workshop with Rachel Heron, who's an American woman who actually has – she she has a – she's a romance writer. Mm -hmm. She writes romances under her name, Rachel Heron, and she also writes – and – you know, I did not know this existed, but it is actually a thing. She writes firefighter romances <laughs> under a pseudonym in America and that firefighter <laughs> romances funded her overseas travels last year or the year before. Wow. Um, which she only sells through Amazon. Mm. She, they never come out in hard copy. Kindle only, yeah. However, interestingly enough, she employs an editor mm. to edit yep. those. So they, and she has a following. That's incredible to me because mm. it, it, it really is true, though, that there are certain genres on Kindle um, that do better than others dramatically. And I think romance must be one of them because I also think that there's um, a certain cringe factor in sort of, you know, having a lot of romance books on your bookshelf. And Mm -hmm. I didn't even think of this until I was talking about romance writing to my daughter saying, you know, how weird it was when she actually went, I don't think it's weird. I've got Seal's romances on my Kobo. And I went, Seal romances? And she said, you know... And it's not obviously the little clapping variety. It's the <laughs> it's the, the tough men in whatever uh, they are. The, um, the American Special Forces. American yeah. Special oh, Forces. Seals. Okay. Yeah, it seals. took a while for me to click there. I was like, actual seals? I know, I know. I didn't no, think no. niche would go that <laughs> specific as seals. Although I think anything. Oh, I think no, there anything are these goes. niches. But yeah. well, I, no, mean, I didn't was, think that would it, go that specific <laughs> on American Forces. I didn't think that was uh, so But she, strange, yes, yeah. and she, she'd bought them quietly. On yeah. her Kobos, so no one in our family knew about yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is that like the opposite of The Little Mermaid? 
Yeah. Oh, are we still on the seal topic? You just can't get. No, no. I'm still talking about the guys. They're oh, like okay. little mermen or something. Uh, they're in the in the water. Oh, mermen. That's no. That's actually a thing. Um, it's interesting. Well, if you wanted giggles, you just got it, ladies and gentlemen. Um, but no, it, it it really is very true and. It was incredible. I was reading this article about these these romance writers, or, or specifically not so much romance, but like erotica, and mm, that mm. they they get paid. That's like, right. This this is a full time job for them, and and it's that idea that you put out something and you just keep putting out work, and that yes. seems to be like a recipe of you know for success on Kindle and boredom. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it, to me. And and I'm not criticizing people who do this, but it's the idea that I could never do that because I guess uh, when you put out work, you you have to like your work. You know, you have to enjoy the writing process. Yes. And I, to well, me, when you treat it as a business, I feel like it loses some of its magic. You know, maybe that's just this me. again pulls us back to Amanda Hocking, though. She's the one who made a millions with yep. the the Kindle publishing, and. She did by putting work out and out and out and keep putting work. It wasn't fantastically edited, but it was still stuff she, she enjoyed mm-hmm. writing. It was still fantasy. Yep. Um, so like a young young adult sort of fantasy. It yep. was. I haven't read it. I've heard many tales that it's editing could, well, would probably put me off. But mm. yeah. See, it's but interesting fact, yeah. it's young adult mm. because anecdotally, and I just mean this anecdotally, yeah. anecdotally it's not an area... Where there are a lot of ebook sales, yeah, because the parents buy yeah. it for their kid and they don't well, go that's to an right. ebook store. Exactly. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah. So that's a really interesting thing, actually. That yeah, I never thought about it like that. But yeah, it's it, it, and I think young adult publishing is is kind of grappling with this as mm. well. Who actually buys the books? Yeah. where are they used? Yeah, yeah, that's right. That's right. I think. Um, uh, Specifically with with like established genres um, like you know young adult and 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 this kind of thing, I think it has a harder time uh, appealing because it's it's a very specific audience, right? Like everyone can read erotica, everyone mm-hmm. doesn't matter mm-hmm. who you are, you can still read it. Young adult is specifically tabled, tailored for a specific age. Mm. Yes, and anecdotally, young adults will not shop in the young adult section. But that's actually, I, I don't believe that that's true because mm. I was actually in this bookshop, I think. Oh, no, it wasn't this bookshop. But it was it was um, in a similar bookshop some years ago and there were a group of early 20-year-olds hanging out at the young adult section pulling the books they had loved two years before off wow. the shelves. That's really and I just thought, oh, that's interesting. I don't think the publishing industry – I mean, they, they go for, you know, the the big picture. They don't, obviously, and they were just a They're group of kids. They're not that desperate for nostalgia, the yeah. publishing people, I guess. Yeah. <coughs> um, it's interesting that one of – and this is, I suppose, the 1%, but it's still worth mentioning um, – The Martian, which is currently a phenomenon, uh, it was – um, and, and the interesting thing is that it's a self-published book. And this is something that I never realized, that The Martian started out, published individual chapters on Andy Weir, who's the author, on his website, <coughs> just published chapters. And then people were saying, like, man, we'd love to buy this on, on, uh, on Kindle. And then he was like, sure. So he put it out, 99 cents, The Martian. Mm-hmm. Um, and that rocketed him, you know. And, and it, again, it is one specific example and. uh Mm. And the thing there is that he had an audience who was reading it on his website, and that can drive word of mouth and, and stuff like um, that. Catherine Valente, a fantasy writer in the States, had a similar. She actually uh, she has a following in the States, and she crowdsour- crowdsourced funding for a book. Mm. Yeah, so she offered um, subscribers a, a chapter a month or something like that, mm. and and um, eventually it hit the... New York best Times bestseller list and was taken over by a publisher. Yeah. Amazing story. Yeah, and, and it's those success stories that I think um, the people in, like, those fringe genres also, like, wish for. Mm. <laughs> it's their mm. dreams, mm. you know. And, and uh, th- there's something to be said about um, ways to break into the market. And and for a lot of people, um, it's ebook publishing is a route into traditional publishing, and for a lot of people, ebook publishing is the way they want to keep it. Um, mm. 
it was it was interesting. I was I was reading about a uh, a writer who uh, he did an article on the Observer, uh, Douglas E. Richards, and he's incredibly successful. He's a New York Times bestseller, um, but he's an ebook writer. Like he mm. writes specifically ebooks um, and publishes them and and he was talking about the writing process and how he said that when i went to a publisher they just couldn't offer me the numbers that i was getting on kindle um he's saying yes i got the i got the you know the great um feeling of being on a bookshelf uh and he and he did do that for one of his books but he said that financially and viably you know that (coughs) the traditional publishing route just didn't do it for Mm -hmm. him Mm. um and the numbers weren't something that he 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 could compete with uh that can you know, they couldn't compete with Kindle. Well, certainly some of the small publishers at the Continuum Convention a couple of years ago were saying that the um, self-publishing is, they feel more of a challenge to their their writers, to to their their um, publishing houses. Mm. So, because, mm. that, because writers are finding, writers in that genre are finding it very easy to go through the self-published and get more money, mm. get more sales and get global sales. Yeah. If you think about running a small publishing house in Australia, particularly distribution is always the issue. Yep. Mm. How do you get the books out there? How do you get them noticed? How do you go to bookshops? Which bookshops? Which bookshops? Yeah. So, you know, if you have a following, Kindle is mm-hmm. the obvious, yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's like if you have those true fans that will buy it mm. will just, you know, it seems to be the financially viable way. Like, um, uh, D- Douglas Richards is the 30th uh, best-selling science fiction author on Amazon. Like, well, but why? of course it doesn't work for children's writing exactly. because, yeah. you know, what eight-year-old has their own Kindle? Give it some time. Give it some time. More than it was. We'll have That's holograms <laughs> and then the book industry will die. Um it and and uh, uh, I suppose these are my final comments and on this topic. Then we'll wrap. Is that uh, I think it's interesting as well to see how this digital trend is slowing down or at least coming to a plateau. Mm-hmm. And I think, and this is just maybe one factor that that could be the reason, is that schools and education ha- have a really big impact because if we are all products of our environment and our upbringing, we are introduced to books, as being physical books. We go into a school, and for the most part still, we have textbooks, we have paper, we're reading, you go to the library, you pick up a book. And this, I think, and, and you know, I think there's very few parents who take an iPad and read them a children's picture book. You know, you take a physical book, you show them the pictures, you let them turn the mm. pages with you. And this has some sort of effect, I feel. And I'm not, and I'm not, I'm no psychologist, but I think this has a huge impact on how we consume media going forward. There's something comforting about sitting down with a physical book. Um, yeah. I think there's also that lovely idea of the book as artifact. Mm. And when you think of the history of publishing, um, it's it's fascinating to me. I've just had this little um, binge buying of folio society books, which are beautiful objects. They're in their slipcases. Mm-hmm. They're always gloriously illustrated now, the Folio Book Company was started in the late 19th century to produce quality books that, at a price that are available to every person. That, mm. was, their, that was their kind of um, their brief. Mm-hmm. I don't know that they're still available at a price for every person. I have to <laughs> save up for mine. <laughs> but they are beautiful books. And that is, you know, the book as a beautiful object, as an artifact, mm. Mm. I don't think that ever goes away. I agree. I certainly agree. I would say that my feelings on that. Um, another thing that's happening is a lot of the society and culture, people nowadays are getting distracted more easily. So e-readers are fantastic. But when most of our e-readers are phones, you're getting a text, you're getting a Facebook message, you're getting a tweet, everything's just coming through. Mm. You're not immersed anymore. And that's mm. why the book by itself then becomes like this little it's a Escape. little shrine of mm. itself, you know. Yeah. And I suppose that's why Kindles did so well because they Kindles removed, did well because they, they removed yeah. all functionality other than reading. That's right. And yeah. that's probably why it's probably at the top of the yeah. ebook market. Maybe it's, it's not the top anymore, but it's I think it's still the top. Yeah, yeah, I think so. And and it's interesting, isn't it, that people these days want functionality, but really do they in 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 
you know, there are there are multitude well, of ebook readers that have different mm-hmm. functions. You can take a f- photo, you can, mm-hmm. you know, uh, text someone. But really, people don't want that. They want a Kindle because you can't do anything else. But I don't know. I still think it leans towards functionality because a book functions as a book. That's as soon true. as you got a mobile, it's functioning for everything social. Mm. Mm-hmm. And that's deteriorating their book, book experience. For me, I can read a Kindle. I'm quite happy to on yeah. my phone. Same. I don't mind that. I, I'm not distracted because I, I shut everything off. I don't have mm. that many uh, things coming through. But I think there's an mm. interesting trend too that, that people will buy the e-book. Mm-hmm. And then if they love it, they buy the <laughs> yes, actual book. That's right. <laughs> that's right, yeah. So they end up with an e-book that's, you know, ephemeral, can be mm-hmm. lost. If you, you know, if you lose your phone, there it goes. <laughs> but they also have the hard copy yeah. on their shelf where people can see it and yeah. judge them. <laughs> <laughs> or not. Or, or be not. impressed. Well, I meant judging <laughs> yeah, as, so as yes, yeah, yeah. oh, you're my kind of person. That's you right. have that book on your shelf. Man, that war and peace <laughs> looks so good up there. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. You yep. lose that with Kindle. Yeah, I agree completely. Final comments, Luke? I think that was it. I think you made yeah. them. <laughs> Catherine, anything more to add? Um, no, but thank you very much for having me. It was a pleasure to have mm, you on. Definitely. Um, so thank you very much for listening, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, Luke, where can people find you? Uh, what have you got coming up? Yeah, you can still find me on the com, which has changed to thesoulshard.com. Both will get you there. Um, or at thesoulshard on Twitter. And I have been making a few tweets, but my review is still taking time to come through. Well, it better be great. <laughs> I just remembered to check out the Michael Pryor thing I mentioned at the start. So, as I mentioned, he's setting up a, a course for a fantasy writing. And you can find information about that on, um, what was it, Writer, Writer, Writers Victoria. Writers Victoria. Yep. Yeah. Fantastic. Mm. Um, Catherine, where can people find your work and whatever you go coming up? Um, I've got a new book coming out next year called Lisette's Paris Notebook that will be published by Alan and Unwin. Um, I keep a relatively regular blog <laughs> on my new website, which has been um, revamped, and it's www.catherine-bateson.com. Fantastic. Lovely to have you on the podcast. Thank you. Thank you for coming. Uh, you can find The Morning Bell themorningbell.net uh, is currently down. We're revamping this, uh, the site. It is uh, themorningbell.com.au and that will be where The Morning Bell will be in the future. So you can check out what uh, they are doing there. I have no idea. I'm looking forward to it too. <laughs> um, as to the podcast, you will find us on iTunes, on Podcast Garden, and, well, you obviously did because you're listening to it now. Um <laughs> As to the next guest, it will be George Ivanov, and he is a children's author, uh, and we look forward to talking with him, and we can talk more about that idea of children's publishing, and who knows? We might talk about e-publishing again. <laughs> <laughs> but thank you very much for listening, and we'll see you in two weeks. See you guys.